Science. Welcome to Probably Science. I am Andy Wood, joined by Matt Kirshen. Hello. And uh, we have a very special episode this week. We have we've had some comments recently that there hasn't been a ton of of science in this podcast. First of all, we should remind you the title of the podcast is uh, Probably Science. And there's been a lot of probably. There's been a lot. The probability of science has, has dropped done drastically. Uh, but yeah, for new listeners, by the way, Matt and I both do actually have uh, science pedigrees of sorts. I uh, have an engineering degree. Matt has a, a maths yep. degree, as they Thank you say. for pluralizing it for maths me. Maths for some reason. Um, but most of the time we do talk about comedy. Uh, but luckily this week, we will be talking a ton about science, the science of comedy, uh, <laughs> because we are joined by two great guests returning for the first for his first repeat appearance on the podcast, Baron Vaughn of uh, USA's Fairly Legal. I, I'm kind of offended that the first thing that you thought of when you looked at me was repeat offender. <laughs> first, <laughs> listen, we all have our innate um, things. Uh, <laughs> so articulate. I, yeah. This, this is going to be a good I podcast. I love it when my black friends refer to me as articulate. Yeah. Um, Andy's innate thing is vocab. Yeah, <laughs> built in, built in. Engineering, you didn't have to lo- no language. No language. Oh my god. Yeah, I was uh I was very lucky to have to be able to avoid mo- uh, commu- com- you knew commun- X and you knew sign. Yeah. That's all you knew. Command I could do derivatives. Man, a Fourier transforms I could nail that shit, but uh <laughs> Did you have a set square? Did you ever use one? Is that the same thing as a uh slide rule? What is a set square? Set square is the one that makes you draw right angles properly. Oh, I guess I probably use that at some point, but not in, yeah. not in college. Yeah. T square. Yeah, is that the same as a T square? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. If you have any any listeners who've who've studied high school geometry in both America and the UK, tell us if a set square is the same as a T square. <laughs> Email probablyscience at gmail.com or tweet us at probablyscience. This is important. It's very important and we're not going to look it up. It's so important that we should talk about it for a bit longer before, invo- <laughs> before bring- <laughs> introducing our actual guest, uh, who sat to my left right now. We have... Um, Psychologist by trade, am I right about that? You, you, you're originally a psychologist, uh, Peter McGraw, professor at University of Colorado Boulder. He holds a PhD in psychology. That's right, and is heading the Humor Research Laboratory at UC Boulder. Is that correct? That is, uh, we call it Hurl. Hurl, sure. <laughs> Humor Research Laboratory. I'm gonna hurl. Very nice. And if anybody thinks this is a joke, this is not. This is a man who is dedicating his life at this point to studying why humor is funny, why there is humor, and what makes things funny. So. Uh, we're excited to have you on here. Um, I've also been a longtime fan. You came out and did a presentation at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival last year that was a lot of fun, where a bunch of comedians got really threatened at the idea that you could explain why things are funny, and they tried to be funny over you, stop you from making your points, in the process proving your points, but not being aware that they were proving them. When I was like screaming from the back of the room, like, he's doing it! He's doing what he says he's not doing! So uh, (laughs) I'm a fan of what you do. I think you actually have... I think you're onto something. I think you might have cracked the code of why things are funny. Well, there's been endless people trying to come, trying to explain what love... Because love is an odd thing. Like, what's the reason for it? Why we have it from an evolutionary point of view. Why we evolute it? Yeah, why we have a See, Baron, it's not just me. It's late at night. We're not always... Uh... It may be the setting. <laughs> it is so late at night, we should tell our listeners, we normally record out in uh, Andy's back garden. It's, it's normally, idyllic. It's an outdoor podcast normally, but it, this, is, this is a late recording. It got chilly, so we're currently... We're in the boudoir. We're in Andy's bedroom, and there's a, there's a candle lit behind us because Andy's hoping to get lucky. Yeah. yeah. I should get a picture of this because people probably won't believe Andy's, that. Andy's stretched on out on the bed. He's wearing a kind of leopard print posing couch. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking a long cigarette. Yeah, I treat my guests well. 
He's putting on. I'm a... wearing a lab coat. <laughs> but Andy's lab coat, weirdly, like he insisted on it. We all had to wear a different thing. The real short one. <laughs> and they all smell like they all smell like a Dracar Noir, or whatever the heck it's called. Dracar Noir is that a thing? I like what it I is. like. Yeah. Okay. It worked in ninth grade. Say, Why do I have to did you say that now? in an authentic accent? Yeah. yeah. Dracar Noir. Dracar Noir. Awful. I, I just all of a sudden Dracar sounded like um, a Star Trek villain, and Doesn't I was like, it? "That's yeah. not a perfume or yeah. a cologne." I think uh, it's. I think it is both. I think it was a Star Trek villain first, and then became a cologne. And that was the commercial. It was like Dracar, <laughs> Ricardo Montalban, in his fine Corinthian. I don't letter. always drink beer, but when I do, I drink Khan. <laughs> That's stupid. I like it. I like it. So, uh, Professor McGraw, may I call you Pete? Sure. Excellent. Um, do you want to give us a, sort of a, a synopsis of, of what, how you came to want to study why things are funny? Sure. I, I was actually studying what makes things wrong. Mm-hmm. I was doing that for a long time. Uh, so uh, studying moral psychology, basically, and had been giving a talk at Tulane University on that topic. And I was using a situation in which a church in Tampa, Florida was trying to get people to go to its winter retreat. And the pastor of the church had this brilliant idea to raffle off a yellow H2 Hummer SUV. Mm -hmm. And I gave this as an example, and all the academics in the audience laughed. And I had purposely been trying to be entertaining. I I don't don't get... Why? Hang on. What? Why? An Hold, S- let him finish. <laughs> no, that's fine. Why? Why was it funny that he was raffling off a Hummer? Well, that's exactly the point. So, um, someone raised their hand in the audience and said, "You say that moral violations." I was making an argument that this was that many people would see this as morally wrong, and uh, basically, why would you laugh at something that's morally wrong? You're supposed to be angered and disgusted by these things. Right, And I got asked that question, and I had no idea what the answer would be because I had never considered what makes things funny, even though I had been studying emotions for over 10 years at that point. Uh-huh. And so then I, I came home, and I said, I started thinking about it and doing a little bit of reading. I said, this is a really important question. I should work on it. Uh-huh. And I recruited a graduate student, Caleb Warren. And the next Shout out to Caleb. That's right. Yeah, he's uh, and and the next thing I know, I had a lab called the Human Research Lab, and huh. you know, four and a half years later, I think I got a pretty good handle on this question. And and if I understand correctly, the main the the closest thing to a grand unifying theory that you've developed so far is uh, the benign violation theory. That's is that sort of the is that still true? You're trying to have everything sort of fall into that one grand theory still of what. I am. Makes things funny. Yeah, I think. Am so. I jumping the gun, and getting ahead of things? By the way, by, by jumping to that already, or that's. But I, I just want to say that benign violation is the best uh, two words. Ever, <laughs> I, that's the best phrase I've ever heard. And I'm naming my band that. It is my next name. comedy yeah. album is going to be called Benign. Benign. B, but it's like B dash nine <laughs> violation. It's also the best phrase I've ever heard from a guy sprawled on his bed in front of three men. <laughs> <laughs> You guys, this podcast is going to be a benign violation. Oh, I'm just going to stretch out here, you guys. Uh, don't mind, don't mind what's underneath these. Don't uh, do that, please don't. Uh, no. Don't do that, even as a joke. I don't like to wear underwear when I'm at home, you guys. It's uh, <laughs> it's just how I do. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't want to to put the cart before the horse, uh, but that that is the sort of grand unifying theory that you've come up with about why things are funny, correct? 
yes. Or, I mean, I, I haven't that... done it alone. Um, so a lot of very smart people, people way, way smarter than me, have been working on this question, uh-huh. well, for thousands of years. So Plato, Socrates, Hobbes, Kant, Freud. Um, and if you don't know those names, they're also... Those people are smarter than you. Hilarious. Also. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, they were all sort of hovering around this idea. So if you look at the other theories that existed beforehand, elements of either violations or elements of benignness. Mm-hmm. So do you want to explain to our listeners what exactly you mean by benign violations? Because we tossed this phrase out a few times and... And we haven't defined it. We haven't defined it yet. Yes. So, the, so essentially the idea is, is that... Um, we respond with laughter, with amusement, with the judgment, hey, that's funny, when uh, we're exposed to something that's wrong, threatening, unsettling in some way, a violation, that we simultaneously see as safe, okay, or, as we say, benign. Mm-hmm. So um, the theory has has a lot of real strengths. So um, it's kind of intuitively appealing when you start looking at all the things that we tend to laugh at. They tend to be things that in some way are wrong. Uh, so Mark Twain said that the secret source of humor is not joy, it's sorrow. There is no humor in heaven. Because there's nothing wrong in heaven, there's nothing yeah, to laugh what, what at would there be to, Yeah. That's why when you go to like a tropic place, like if you do stand up in Hawaii, they're like, what? We have a beach. What are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> Everything's awesome here. I don't know what you're talking about. Or I've oh, gone yeah. on vacations where I thought I'd come back with material and I've just been relaxed and enjoying myself and I've like, yeah, I have nothing to say about this. Like this isn't making oh, me yeah, want to write Oh yeah, you do jokes. far more writing when, you're, when you've just come out of a relationship than you do going into one. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Jerry Lewis said that comedy is a man in trouble. So, you know, the sort of idea of having some conflict, having some problems, having something... Mm-hmm that just seems amiss that you can sort of point to ends up being good fodder for, uh, for, well, it doesn't have to be good comedy necessarily, but, but fodder for comedy. Right. But, but is that because then the person is telling you about their sorrow? So you, so you feel safe to, it could be. Yeah. So to laugh at it. So the, the one aspect is that, that because violations, you, violations usually cause negative emotions, Right? They usually make us fearful or angry or uncomfortable or disgusted. You know? mm-hmm. uh, there has to be this other element to it. Uh, it you have to find a way to, to find some safety there, some playfulness there, some way to see this thing as okay. Uh-huh. This, this ties so perfectly in the thing I want to bring up. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> and so, um, and, and so the, the theory is really powerful. In, 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 for instance, it can explain the two ways that hu- an attempt at humor can fail. Mm-hmm. Right, you can bore people by um, being too benign. Maybe by being or? too benign, there's nothing wrong about that situation. There's nothing kind of arousing, negatively arousing, that can switch and become positively arousing. Uh-huh. And it also can explain how you offend people, how you disgust people, you go too far, and how there's this real sweet spot in comedy that is dependent on not just the person who's producing it, but also on the audience. Mm. So the vast individual and cultural differences fit the theory also. What I see to be a benign violation and laugh, Matt finds boring, and Andy finds offensive. Yeah. Just because of who we are, what we've seen, the way we've been... So that doesn't doesn't do anything to counter the theory. It just reinforces it, but says that we all bring to it a different definition of what is benign and what's a violation. Exactly. So how does that play into... like? So the laugh of something that's expected, because often, you know, laughs 
joke laughs come from twists laughs come from unexpected surprises but you can also laugh at something that you can see coming like you know the guy walking towards the banana skin and he still slips on it and still falls over yeah so i think that uh, so if you ask people what makes things funny uh the average person uh, says they give a definition that's akin to some form of incongruity theory, which is which is the reigning theory of what makes things funny. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes back to to at least Kant and beyond, and that that has this idea of surprise or unexpectedness, where there's some mismatch between what we want and what we get. Yeah. But what Matt's pointing out, I think, rightly, is that you don't need unexpectedness. You actually can laugh at things that you know are going to happen. Well, like sometimes that's that's some of my favorite humor in a in a sitcom or in a show where yeah that joke of like you know the more sophisticated version of the guy who is glaringly obviously going to step onto the banana like he just he's still walking towards it and everyone's like you're not going to step on that no 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 I'm fine. you know you you look like yeah. you're going to step onto it. I'm I'm totally <laughs> fine and the whole audience knows knows that it's going to play out and actually gets that laugh from it playing out. Or uh, they ex- the expectation is it's going to play out. Yeah. I would, I, would be, I would laugh at, oh, he's going to trip on that banana peel, but once he steps on the peel, he can't move. Right. Well, like that, his, stuck, his foot is now stuck to the peel. He's like, what's going on? My I mean, foot. That's, hey, but that's boom. getting back. Like, that is goes, funny. Cushion. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, going, that's going back to the old theory because that is a genuine surprise. I think, was, was it Chaplin who said that? Like, the, the proper way to do the banana skin joke would be the guy... Uh, like, step. You see, you see the guy, then you see the banana, then you see his foot go towards it, then you see him stop, take a step to the side, and then falls down a hole. Like that's that's the sort of right, right. Uh, that would still be the surprise, but sometimes you get that laugh in comedy, but in stand up as well. From that, ex- from that, we know he's going to say. Yeah, this it's thing. formulaic, but it's a formula that we like that still exhibits the benign violation theory probably yeah, right well, but how how does how exactly does that fit in? I'm, I'm thinking in stand-up for example Stuart Lee's got a routine that uh, like an old routine that he used to do about seeing um seeing an, a life-size inflatable et outside princess diana's palace when she died like amongst the flower the memorial flowers <laughs> and the way, and it's a lovely bit and the way the routine plays out is him just going like who came up with that i'd imagine it was just you know someone just woke up in the, the night saw the news just woke up her Husband's just my 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 God! It's uh, you heard the news? It's uh, Diana, the princess, well, the queen of our hearts. She's uh, she's died. She's had a car crash. She's she's, she's gone. Uh, like it's really that bad? Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's dead. She's no more. And he goes, uh, well, I better get a life-size inflated model VT <laughs> <laughs> uh, and le- and leave it outside our house. And it just, uh, <laughs> I think the tag but he has is, is like, but that's still wrong though. There's something but wrong that's, about it's, it's that. violating the tradition of what mourning is, but doing it with this playful character. But it's wrong. So you're taking this thing that the die, the princess die thing is bringing up negative associations instantly. That's that's the violation, and then you're associating it with this cute kids movie character that's totally right. Well, is that a right, good way of looking at it or not? I I think so. So um, one of the the challenges of of doing this work <laughs> is. Uh, there's a tendency to want to rely on our intuitions and mm-hmm. to try to deconstruct these things in the way that philosophers have been trying to do for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes very difficult to introspect uh, about humor. One is, is to understand why, uh, 
why like I'm reacting in this way, but it's especially difficult for me to understand how you're reacting. Right. Mm. So, but for it to work as a, as a scientific theory, one, like it has to then you've made the you've the theory makes predictions, and then you have to fit any evidence you find to that theory. It has to. Yeah, yeah, but there's different ways that you can do this. So you can do that through thought experiments, but the other way you can do it is through real experiments. So um, if, uh, if it's indeed the case that I'm interested in understanding why a giant inflatable E.T. doll or character is funny or not on Princess Diana's lawn... Right. But that seems uh, like the the initial vi- like th- I can see like the initial it being there is a violation. That's because that's like you expect flowers, you get there's a life inflatable ET. But then the way he played out that routine, the way Stuart Lee plays it is is a, the equivalent of watching someone slowly walk to the balls of the banana skin and then actually falling on it. You, you're you're laughing at like we know where he's going to end up, and what gets the laugh is the fact that he still does it. Is it? Is that what the violation is? You're expecting a twist, but there isn't one. Or well, you were going to explain how you might do a, a test to to answer this question instead of just right. Or where were you going with? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult for me to sit here and and figure out exactly what it is that makes that uh, bit hit that sweet sweet spot. I already, with the three I already of have a different. I already least. have a different take on the bit of why it works. But continue. Yeah. So so what I what I would want to do is um, I would want to try to identify the violation and then I'd want to remove it. And then see, does humor decrease? Um, I also want to try to find what makes it okay, mm-hmm. and then remove that and see if humor decreases. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that that um, you know you try to hone in on these things by systematically adding or removing elements that might make it more of a violation or more benign. Now, of course, what Matt is getting at, I think, is a good point. Is that uh, might there be a more parsimonious, i.e., a simpler explanation that has to do with expectations or not? And I, I would argue that um, the answer is no, uh, only because uh, once you start looking at just expectations, it, it tends to fall apart when you start looking at um, other forms of of or other situations where people laugh that aren't necessarily jokes. Uh-huh. Right? right. So, so you have to be careful about creating a theory that just explains jokes versus the wide range of things of that, that create all humor. humor. But then, could it also be like more than one? Th- I mean, surely, it's possible that more than one thing provokes the same reaction or the same feeling in people. You know, like a, a dust in your eyes has the same effect as bright sunlight in your eyes, but it's doing a different thing. At- yeah, so so um, this is different things raise your body's temperature or lower your body's temperature. Yeah, so I. Um, as a scientist and as, as someone who studies emotion, one of the things that, that tends to be uncontroversial is, uh, is that you can boil down uh, the, uh, the situations that, that create different types of emotions. So the things that tend to create anger are genuinely agreed on. So we don't have several theories of anger to, to describe the different situations in which we, we um, become angry or... Um, we don't have several theories of fear or we don't have several theories of pride and so on. So, mm-hmm. so if you think from a functional standpoint, uh, you should expect a, a certain set of appraisals that will, cre- that will create one emotion but not another emotion. And that those appraisals um, will be the same across many domains, even though like being scared of ghosts or being scared of spiders still creates fear in the same way, although 
ghosts are very different than spiders. Wait, what? They are? Well, I thought... we'll have to explain this after. <laughs> okay, I know like, you only encounter both in Halloween decorations. <laughs> no, I thought every spider that I see is the spirit of a dead loved one. That's why I never... <laughs> no one explained that to me growing up. But, um... Yeah, so, so the idea essentially is that, um, that humor is really a more complex psychological experience than I think a lot of the very basic emotional experiences we have, like fear and so on, because it... It really is sort of mysterious because it's there and it's gone and you've experienced it and I don't experience it. Mm. But I do still think that a small number of concepts can be used and that you can apply them broadly. Yeah. Um, and, and, well, a quick question. Sure. Speaking of the um, how more it's more complex, I'm assuming this. I didn't look this up, so I'm just asking like a loaded question hoping the answer is yes. But is this also a relatively newer addition to our brains evolutionarily? Like is this all existing in the frontal or you know, as far as like some some emotions are, old, like lust is older than love, and as far as when when our ancestors had these parts of the brains that were functioning, do they know the parts yeah, of and fire like fighting from... precedes jazzercise? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I think the answer is no to that. Oh, okay. I think that that um, that a humor that humorous responses. Uh, well, I think that they're really primitive. Mm-hmm. So they're not primitive in in response to like satire, right? So, um, but they are primitive in response to things like play fighting and tickling. So, from an evolutionary standpoint, I think that rough and tumble play, physical threats that were seen as okay, were the huh. first things that made humans or our predecessors hmm. laugh. Oh, okay, and that that serves as a signal. So, if you think about rough and tumble play you think about play fighting it's the victim the one who's being attacked who does more of the laughing and it basically says i know you're not going to hurt me i'm enjoying this and this is why i've gotten into fights though (laughs) (laughs) with women who don't like to be tickled and they're laughing and i'm like this is enjoyable to you and then i get punched in the face and dumped because they don't like to be tickled yeah or or for a prolonged period of time or by you by me or my fingers are too <laughs> long or pointy and then, uh, so the best evidence that i have uh that this is um this is part of our ancient brain so to speak uh, i don't really know much about the brain to be honest really yeah i try oh, okay. not to learn about the brain stuff <laughs> like so the much. brain but uh is that ta- that rats um seem to laugh Really? Yes. I mean, to call it laughter is really controversial within what kind the of, field. What kind of humor do they tend to go for? Like prop comedy? or <laughs> <laughs> They make fun of they, mice. They talk about how mice and rats are different. They, like they mice walk drive different. like this. <laughs> rats, we drive like this. Rats, we carry the plague, right? <laughs> who, who here has the plague? My show of tails? All right. I was watching The Secret Damn the other day. She... I don't know why the rats are black in my impression. That's more racist because I'm saying that black people are rats. Anyway, continue what you were saying, Peter. <laughs> Am I supposed to laugh into the microphone or should I turn my head away? I think it makes the podcast Turn your better. head away I don't know. in shame. <laughs> <laughs> you should have learned by now it's an emotion we should all be embarrassed but you, of. You were saying, though, rats uh, laugh and it's controversial to call it that. To call it rat laughter. So the, um, but they, uh, they emit these ultrasonic chirps. When um, when you sort of roughhouse with them, and when I say you, I mean a researcher who has <laughs> all too these much time rats. In their hands, yeah. yeah, so so when you know they, these rats get to know their their the researchers and the research assistants who work with them, and when they sort of 
I don't. I I can't demonstrate this on. on well, I'll I'll just lie down the floor here. Um, <laughs> but they sort of like sort of push suddenly, them around, and like you might, you know, with a cat or a dog, sort of like kind of play yeah. physically. Yeah. Um, especially a dog. Especially yeah. So they um, they emit these chirps, which go away when you stop, mm-hmm. and if you again, the researcher does this really aggressively, it changes to a different sonic. Uh, profile that's associated when rats um, fight are genuinely afraid. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so they can experience. So the idea really is that we delight in um, in benign violations because they're sort of they're, they they appear to be negatively arousing, but the perception that they're okay switches the sign, and so what could be negative and re- you know really bad can all of a sudden become enjoyable pleasurable and people pursue it in the same way these rats will if uh, the researcher puts their hand in another part of the cage the rat will come over to it and sort of try to s- move itself under the hand to try to stimulate Keep, this experience wow. here yeah. i have a i have a question is it, has there has there been much about uh communality considered in terms of like when I think of a laugh, it in in some senses it's an involuntary response, and it's like you have laughing, screaming, orgasm, <laughs> and it's like the and or like a so it's like these these kind of because it used to, a teacher used to say to us that that laughing and crying both center you, they kind of come from the same place physically, and it always seems like all those kind of calls are gather around because like we, they, they, we, they they can be socially they can be addictive uh, sort well, of or it's, or it's it's a social i'm i'm, I'm asking if, if if there's been consideration of the sociability of it yeah that they're contagious because it's like i mean we as comedians have experienced or i i have my theory is uh, the smaller an audience is the more self-conscious they are mm-hmm. yeah because the they further they're spread and the bigger the gap between the audience and the stage because they don't want to there's no anonymity in their response Mm-hmm. They become self-conscious and nobody wants to break the silence and stick out. But when there's more people, they're more likely to laugh because they get caught up in the wave of laughter, which is the same, I would say, if people are screaming or scared, that same thing kind of goes around. Or uh, a f- an orgasm or a female, <laughs> what's it How called? Female groups? copulatory response. Do you think that's contagious by hearing? <laughs> it, it activates your sexuality. It does. It's, okay, it's a call. It's yeah, a come yeah, hither yeah. call. You hear sex. You want to have sex, and most of the time, you want to have sex with the person that you heard, mm-hmm. except for uh, when Harry met Sally. Except for when Harry met <laughs> Sally, I'll have what she's having. I still want to do Betty Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I just I, I ask if uh, if you've considered that. Has there been anything about that in your in your research in terms of like the. Uh, the communality well, of I what guess a, in a way that would fit into like the more the bigger the group the more you feel like a collective like a small member of a collective the safer you can feel and the more therefore the more benign the situation the more the more comfortable you are with what's going on does it I'm sorry go ahead oh so so um, I think uh, so laughter can be automatic so it's mm-hmm. you know it's contagious in the sense that someone starts laughing you tend to automatically do so. Giggle fits in church. There is some... We do have some conscious control over it, so um, people can stifle their laughter, especially when they're when they're worried about um, what other people might think of them. And right, I think that right. that's... That uh, some of these group effects have... Uh, are at play there. So think about the best comedy clubs are dark. 
It helps create some anonymity, some you know, so people are more likely to not worry that other people can see them laughing. Mm-hmm. When the person to your left and the person to your right are laughing, then this thing that's seemingly wrong must be okay. That's why I've noticed the least laughs in a corporate gig. Matt was talking yeah. about it when it's people's bosses right oh, there. Their bosses right. I'm uh, doing a gig, for and you have some, an expectation of behavior, and there is, and I can see, I can see people at every joke kind of. Clocking <laughs> yeah. is the bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and even laugh. in non-corporates, what often happens is people check with their friends, or if they're in a on a date, they check with the other oh, half. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. They, if if the guy laughs and then and then the woman doesn't, then he'll sort of suddenly stop laughing, or or people look to each other for encouragement and g each other on. Um, but I I think we, t- we when I was in Denver, we talked a bit about like you interviewed me, and um, so it was about. I th- I think comedy laughter comes a bit from a conspiracy between yourself and the comedian, between a comedian and the audience. And the more conspiratorial it feels, the more you you're inclined to laugh, which is why I think the more local, the more localized the humor, the more you get laughs. Like if you do stuff about what just happened in the room mm-hmm. or the town you're in, that always gets laughs that are disproportionate to the the quality of the joke because because right. people f- you suddenly feel like you're in an inside circle of knowledge. It's communality. Um, and Is that I'm, a word? Communality. That seems like you a guys word. keep looking at me like yeah. I've never heard that word. <laughs> and you know who else hasn't? Oxford English. <laughs> he hasn't heard that word either. OED. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, so. Matt had has this great um, anecdote about Uh-oh. how about I already know this is inaccurate about how you might do this. So the. Do you remember the story? I don't. I don't remember. Oh, what it's it? about the guy who's like, you know, the manager, the club manager doesn't want me telling you these jokes. Oh yeah, that was um yeah, I was that's right. I was talking about um, Max oh. Miller, who was a musical like vaudeville performer, and his whole shtick. He, he was like one of the biggest acts in in Britain in the uh, like the early 1900s, mm-hmm. um, or if not the biggest. But his whole thing, he'd sort of he'd pretend that he was telling things that the um the theater manager didn't want to hit mm. so he sort of stand with his knee like resting on his like arm resting on his knee leaning out into the audience and constantly <laughs> glancing back nervously <laughs> into the wings uh and it and it was all about you know it was all slightly naughty and slightly he'd, he'd go on with two joke books and there was like the white book and the blue book and everyone <laughs> knew which one the blue book was huh. uh but it but it was all about here, here the manager doesn't want me to tell this stuff but uh and and this idea that any moment he's going to be pulled out of this place but in the meantime he's sneaking this naughty stuff past like it's just we're in it together like and he's I, violating the rules of what this club is supposed to yeah and i think particularly dirty comics still like do that now not not in such an explicit way but if you if you go and see someone like jim norton or whatever uh you're you're laughing at stuff you shouldn't be laughing at maybe right or right. Or, or even like a shock comic or, i almost feel like i'm i'm just being real when people say that, they're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm just being real. Oh, That's oh, what yeah, I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm just being honest. This you're, guy's got no, he's got no he's boundaries. Got no filter. Yeah. You're, you're, filter. You're sort of, le- they're living vicariously through you. They're, you're sort of, they're being naughty. You're, they're misbehaving. You're their guide into this world of where the rules don't apply. Yeah. Yeah. But hmm. it's kind of still safe. I guess that, again, that applies. It's still, to your theory, it's still, they're violating what would normally be okay. Or, or at least they're pretending to. Yeah. But it's still within the safe environment of a theater, and we're all in it together, so no one's going to be offended. I think one of the things that's really brilliant about uh, the bit that Matt just described is that it seems to function... Again, I, I haven't done the experiment, but it seems to function to both increase both the violation and the fact that it's okay. And here's my guess. 
Right. Is that by saying that the club owner doesn't want me saying this, it means, well, what I'm about to say is really wrong, is bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But because he portrays the club owner as being sort of unreasonable, he's bonding and, and he's like sort of leaning and bonding with the audience. When you when you like someone, when you're on their side, you cut them a break. You're like, well, this guy's not really a bad guy. Yeah. And so this likability factor can can really, you know, you know that you know the person who's charming or the person who's uh, who's likable. They can say things that that person who's not likable, who's not charming, can't say. Right. And so all of these things end up can end up facilitating or hurting one of these appraisals. Right. But I, yeah, that does that does up both the, the idea, yeah, the the theater manager is in the wings, but but you're whispering, but he sort of half whispers, but stage whispers out the jokes. So I guess then that increases the safety, the benign mm. factor of it, because he's not going to hear it or he's on he's oblivious to it, right, which right. is an idiot. Yeah. So I think uh, so. I talk about. Um, I mean, th- th- I'd like to get your opinion about this. So there's one thing. Let's assume for the moment that I'm right. And that that humor is created by the perception of a benign violation. You could say, so what? Right? So now we know, but that's of little use, you know, just to three people who do this for a living. Um, But I might, I want to start saying that knowing it actually can end up being useful, at least Mm -hmm. in terms of helping people hone their intuitions and maybe save some time well again like in science a scientific theory shouldn't just fit the evidence it should be able to make predictions and be able to create new evidence that's right yeah so and i can tell you some of that new evidence that other theories haven't been able to do so like one one thing for instance is it can explain this idea that humor is tragedy plus time right so in the moment a tragedy is hard to laugh at with some passage of time the distance helps reduce its threat and can help perceive help people perceive a benign violation. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think humor is tragedy plus charm. <laughs> like, charm can make up for not enough time. Because there are other comedians that are that are open up my vein. This happened yesterday, and they can still make it funny. Right? You know, I mean, like I, Tig Notaro, uh, the thing she just very recently did that right. show that was recorded at Largo that right. Louis C.K. put out, which was. Do you know uh, about this, Pete? Yeah, I do. Okay, uh, which was. Yeah, about her about her cancer and the and you know and but she, she has she just been diagnosed. But it was she like, came out on stage. It was and said, there. It was ongoing. Like first she was, thing she said was, "Hi, I have cancer. I have cancer." I have cancer. cancer. But she yeah. still has incredible perspective on it. Right. Like even though it's right, and that, and I and that that points to her as a uh, I think a person who is very very good at um, self like self aware. To kind of get that amount of perspective on something while it's currently happening. Right. Because I know for myself, I would just be a fucking wreck. Like that. You wouldn't have the skill to make it benign so quickly. Mm-hmm. And she was so gifted, she was able to find the way of portraying it that it took away the threat, got people's guards down. Because the initial audience reaction was just violation. When yes. First they thought she was joking for a little while. Like, why would you come on and say you have cancer? And then they realized it and they were terrified and then she found a way to make it still still make it funny take the teeth out of it and have them laughing and some of them crying still but yeah like that so she was doing she was being benign with this violating idea yeah oh, you know what wasn't benign what's that you know oh what no wasn't benign. malignant yes the <laughs> awful but, awful 
Well, one of the things that she did, uh, if you go back and listen to uh, to her set, is that she keeps she keeps assuaging the audience. Yes. So she keeps saying like, "No, no, no, this it's is okay. okay. This is going to be okay." I mean, she must say "okay" fifty times yeah. in that. Uh, she doesn't use the word cancer as much as she uses the word okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, of course, few people could have done that. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's quite good. And um, and certainly it was a mixed emotional reaction that, that people end up having. But she brought people around. My guess is there's some people that she was unable to. Right. For, you know, which, will, which she'll probably fixate on. Yeah. That guy right. in the front that's just like... <laughs> <laughs> but, so that, but this idea of psychological distance, I think... Um, I keep saying Matt's right. Uh, you can, you can keep doing that. With that accent, it. how can he be wrong? <laughs> we already accepted that. Yeah. Um, but there is there are times where where violations can be funny when they're psychologically closer. So mm-hmm. people say it's funny because it's true, right? And they'll say you had to be there, mm-hmm. which sort of indicates that the distance being far away from something that's wrong doesn't always make it funnier. So it does in some ways. Like so, for instance, cartoons. Um, often have the worst violations. So think about South Park, Family Guy, Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Those are things that that people don't say in real life, and and obviously don't people don't get anvils dropped on them. Right. But sometimes reality is is funnier than hypotheticality, and sometimes situations in the moment are. And I think that those tend to be um, more mild violations. So getting hit by a car five years ago funny getting hit by a car today not funny but slipping on a banana peel today funny five years ago not funny but do you think so do you think cartoons are both able to and in fact kind of have to have more distinct violations because they're so removed from reality the the one because they're so much more benign because they're drawings rather than real people it's why the violation has to be greater as well it's yeah. It's why the the comics in the Sunday newspaper are boring, <laughs> because you can't have violations in the newspaper that are worthy of laughter, and you know, and when you couple it with a with a cartoon, but the stuff that's you know, the, the edgier stuff, the stuff that's really really funny. Kenny dying it's, every it's, episode. Exactly. And by the way, Kenny looks the least human. Of you never all see of, his face. You can't even see his face. He barely even speaks English. So right. they've basically created a character who is the least realistic of all of them, and he just happens to be the one who gets murdered at the end of every episode. I think that, you know, if it was Cartman, who you sort of have an affinity to, despite how despicable he is, it seems harder to make it work. I yeah, absolutely yeah. agree with so, that. So, the idea, so this idea that, that distance sometimes helps and sometimes hurt, and it depends on the degree of violation, the degree of wrongness, let's say, only that theory can can capture that there's no other theory that can capture that and that's a brand new generate like i sat i basically sat down one day and i was like well if this is true and that's true and this follows then you should be able to and you can now see it everywhere that makes once sense. it's been yeah. pointed out to you so that was an example though of you did sort of do that via via thought experiment of sorts but you were saying in general a lot of the things you do are empirical experiments right yeah. you do a lot of actual testing and control like you did you set up a mock comedy club didn't you in Denver? I tr- yeah. Or does, I did that not happen? I did. It did happen. Okay. And um, so, so that distance I think study. I played a few mock comedy clubs. In my time. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Well, I just want to hear more about actual real world tests you've done to try to 
prove some of these things if you have yeah so um so the distance stuff i did all that in the laboratory so every example of of distance and violation we systematically um, manipulated and showed these kinds of effects so you can make things funnier or less funny in systematic ways by so, showing like videos that have these kind of things to audiences or yeah what, what so actually... some of it we did um like so one was a uh, um one way that pe- one way that you could get distance is social distance. So strangers are socially more distant than friends, mm-hmm. uh, for instance. And so we did a study where we showed people Facebook status updates of a young woman named Kara who accidentally donates two thousand dollars to Haitian Relief. Mm-hmm. So she's texting two hundred times, ten to ten bucks a pop, ten bucks a pop. And we asked people to take the perspective that Kara is a is a good friend or a stranger, and they find that accidental donation that benign violation to be funnier when she's a stranger in another set of conditions we make it a mild violation fifty dollars five texts it switches it reverses it's funnier when your friend does something stupid but mildly stupid when it's a stranger, you don't care that much about it. If it's, it's just mild. too distant. Yeah, it's just there's there's too much distance there. There's no, there's no threat there's no really. Threat because it's not someone you. Ca- yeah. So if it was two thousand dollars, your friend was losing. You instantly are violated more than anything else because you feel for your friend having lost that much money. That's right. But if it's a stranger that lost a tiny amount of money, then it's benign and there's no violation. Yeah. So I mean, of course, there's you know in both cases there's humor, but it's just more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that I think that's what comedians do um they don't have a theory they don't necessarily need a theory because they have they're good at this and they have the ability to test these things night in and night out so live think about right yeah and sometimes it doesn't work and then sometimes it does so think about someone who says i was on my way over to the comedy club tonight and you're not going to believe what happened Uh right so so it may be the case that having the incident you know, purportedly occur on the way to the. Well, people do club. that. People always just broke up with their girlfriend, and there yeah. used to be there, there was this gig uh, near the south coast of England where this guy from the local council reviewed all the shows and believed everything the comedian said on stage. <laughs> <laughs> like, we I, have the most interesting town, you it, guys. It honestly has got. It's been taken. Like the website, I looked for it recently, and it's no longer there. I'm gutted. I wish I'd taken a screenshot of all of them. Because he he really did write like he wrote one of the reviews like he Richard Morton loves this gig because it's where he received his favorite ever heckle, <laughs> and then another one was and another one he actually wrote like it's amazing Mark Watson wasn't more flustered considering the journey he had to get here. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Oh man, we have fun. <laughs> Good night. Show. Smoke pellet. Um, <laughs> Man, I wish I got to uh, say more bullshit before you ac- got into actual science. Yeah. Well, no, we could I'm still sorry do. about that, guys. No, I like, I like that <laughs> no, we... No, no, uh, no, because this is fucking fascinating. But, what? Uh, we were making up for all the lack of science. Yes, so this, is, this is like the best of both worlds to me. I love this because we're getting to do comedy talk, but still, uh, it is all technically science. Is it, Aaron, you were about to... I was about to say, uh, throw it to you because you, you, um, you had a theory earlier and you said that might fit in with what you were talking about, that Stuart Lee E.T. joke. And, oh, well, I just had a different take on that joke of why that joke is funny because you're... you're uh, I just think it. I like the imagination of whom is it that decided that that was appropriate for this situation, because that's what he imagined. Right. And then the 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 ease, the obviousness that that guy's like, well, this is the obvious choice, is to go get an ET like that, and yeah. that's absurd. Right. That's. But I, I'm just. It doesn't matter. I want to read you this because I I read this. Oh, I don't remember how long ago. 
know, but it, it, it kind of because you are talking about again, as you said, it's not specific to a joke as much as laughter in general. It could, yeah, it could be right? slapstick, physical comedy. Um, it could be wordplay. So think about while you look this up. I'll, you know, so why is it that we laugh at puns and other types of wordplay? Uh-huh. First of all, not everybody does. Um, who thinks puns are funny are people who really care about language. Yes, of course. So they so they're both threatened by the misuse uh. of language. So they've some violation of a linguistic norm or convention or rule. So they're really like, Matt Kaplan here right they're now. Like this is wrong, but they're also able to see how it could work. So it makes sense by way of a different convention or norm. Or, right. You know. So so um, so wordplay fits. You know, so you need something wrong there. You also have to see how it's okay. Who is it who who can do that? Are people who are bookish, and they're also the ones who can be aroused enough by this to delight in a good pun, and so, not just be mad that someone's destroying their precious language. Exactly. <laughs> or, or you know, that is not what that word means. That's Mike Kaplan to a T. That's Mike Kaplan. He's a linguistics ma- master. He has a master in linguistics. That's why he's the greatest punner I've ever met in my life. Do you know Mike Kaplan? Yes, I do. Okay. He was on, he was uh, on the panel at Bridgetown. Bridgetown. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah. he was. Wow. That's my impression. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a horrible impression. I, um, okay. So, because I've thought about, I, I mean, obviously I think about this all the time because it's like, I, I realize that recently I don't really like any comedy on television. <laughs> Basically, I like Louie and I like Curb Your Enthusiasm and uh, I mean this has to do because I was thinking about you're talking about this violation but the violation isn't a universal thing right everybody has their own idea of what a violation is right. which is why people with with severe lacks of sense of humor take every violation as a violation yeah. they don't see it as anything benign you can't talk about this subject at all if you hear it it's automatically a violation to those people in a, in, in, a, in, in a sense so I just like because I have oh, nothing way, but silence right now. There's, there's, a, flip, there's a flip side to that, though. Yeah. So um, one of the things about comedians is how difficult it can it can be to make them laugh using sort of comedy for the masses. Right. And I think the reason is is it's just it's just not threatening enough. So, um, you know, if you think about comedy for television, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pitched at a very broad level. Right. And threatening enough doesn't have to be like we need the jokes to be like really nasty or, or rougher. Although we do like comics tend to laugh at darker stuff than the general public. Right. Because like, I think you want it to be pushed further. Mm-hmm. But also, I think the kind of comedy that we like more, like I, I love watching Maria Bamford just because she takes she's so left field compared to mainstream comedy. So and she's you- so hard to guess. Like, I can't. As a, as a comic myself, I watch a lot of comedians and you play and guess the punchline, but you can't with someone like Maria because her yeah. punchlines just come out from some weird place. <laughs> like they, they, but, it, she's, but her characters are exclusively benign. The actual way that everything she does is delivered is always yeah. in a really charming, cutesy way. And, yeah, and, and then her, her humor is so great, but also so unguessable. So it completely gets me every time. It tricks, yeah. it, it fools me. I stop watching as a comedian and start watching as a, as a punter, stop analyzing and uh-huh. just start enjoying. Yeah. So you will get to avoid that. I think one of the unfortunate things about studying what makes things funny and, and perhaps being a comic also is you're sitting in the back of a club and the audience is roaring and you're going, oh, that's very good. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So the emotional arousal is not there. You can recognize that it's a very funny thing. Oh, the but- most common thing you'll hear in a in a writer's room, like or when any comics are writing together, is someone will say a joke and then they'll go, "Yeah, that's funny." <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Just right. a laughter, but, but yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you though. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm fascinated by all of this. Obviously, uh, yeah. So I read this. I don't remember. This was in a thing called the stage in the school, which was some theater book from high school and i've no idea where this list came from but it's always stuck with me and uh i feel like it's an amalgamation of many things that many of people say a lot of the people that you've mentioned from plato to kant um so i'll read this for you guys and uh you tell me what it is this is this one two three let me just make a four five six seven causes a laughter okay read by the uh trained actor baron vaughn read by a trained actor baron vaughn exaggeration Inflated actions or movement, bigger than life. Incongruity, contrasting visually slash vocally. For example, a skinny man next to a fat lady. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was funny. That, <laughs> that, gets, that gets its whole, one whole That gets line. skinny man, yeah. fat lady. But that, yeah, that gets a lot just because the inappropriateness of that as an example. I know, because it's, <laughs> it's such an obvious example. And but we've done that. It's it's like, just, I saw this couple, they look like a 10. Yeah, but also that's not. It's also just so non incongruous for like like a skinny man next to a bear, <laughs> but like a skinny man next to a fat lady. Exactly. It's just like something that happens in a supermarket. But, but just they, like he said, we push it further. We're just right. like, well, what's fatter than a fat lady? A bear, obviously, yeah, yeah. an inflatable ET lady. Um, anticipation. Building up for a laugh. Banana peel is left on the floor. We wait for someone to fall. Then at the end of the play, someone slips on it. Ambiguity. A play on words upon double meaning or disguise. Recognition. Spoofing about a common topic that we recognize. Like um, local humor. Well, that also that would also cover... Uh, recognition covers observational comedy as well. Like, I guess the... I know that! <laughs> That's so... Tr- I've, been, I've done that! Yeah. I thought that, bro! Uh, so That's something I need to, I'm going to ask you about in a second when okay. Baron's finished his list. Protection. Brutal behavior or slapstick. The audience laughs knowing that they are protected from the abuse mm. or that's at the fact that no one is really getting hurt. Yeah. Pie in the face. So that's the benign bit of yeah. the violation. Relief. Adding comedy to a dark or sad scene to lift the mood. That's re-saying the thing they just said. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not tearing you down. I'm, I'm just trying to fit this all into Peter's so I'll say this. I'll say them all again. Exaggeration, incongruity, anticipation, ambiguity, recognition, protection, relief. All right. Um, now, of those, let's I mean, take them apart one at a time. No. <laughs> but, but they, they, I mean, the the one thing <laughs> Baron's super excited about yeah. about our reactions yeah, to this. I'm having a great I did time. It, I did it. Um, <laughs> observational comedy recognition is what the one is the one on that list that seems the hardest to fit into the violation idea. Like what? Um, Someone Don't just so. describing. Well, just someone referencing things from the '80s and just getting a laugh by saying. Uh, Different strokes, hungry, hungry hippos, and like sir, some some dumb audiences will just be like, yeah. "I had hungry, hungry hippos." <laughs> I'll go. Oh, well, we do, we know? do this, like, don't we? We, uh, you know, if someone asks you the time, you check your watch, even though you're looking or whatever, like that kind of thing. Why? Yeah. Where's Where's the violation? Like the the violation in that? I, well, I can answer this question. Go for it. Go ahead, Pete. No, I'd rather you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, hold on, but one thing I would say is that that um, if you're going. If you if you want to pick at the theory, which is fine, you have to offer another theory that's better. Boom, mic drop. Right. So so <laughs> I I think that I mean one of the things uh, 
that's that's really difficult to do would be to to perfectly explain all things that are funny and not funny, right? Because you have to be able to do both with the theory. And um, I actually want to make a proposal to you guys. Mm-hmm. I I'll, I I will run an experiment that will help explain why the ET joke is funny so we can work out the details of that nice and i can run that experiment and we can report it you guys i'll send you the results awesome. yeah cool. and you yeah. can report it That's back awesome so, this will be the single first time that we followed up on an actual experiment because <laughs> we're Bro- putting the work on someone else's yeah shoulders. on like yeah. episode three or something andy and brooks were gonna <laughs> apply to be astronauts i think it's worth pointing out iran has sent a monkey into space before Bro- <laughs> <laughs> Brooks and Andy have got even to the training yeah. camp. To be fair, that monkey said they were going to do it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we can, we'll run that. We can talk. We can talk through the different conditions, and I'll run the experiment. We'll fi- figure out if you take it. If you take an inflatable ET and you make it an inflatable bear, or you make it a, a big pile of inflatable dog shit, or whatever it is, <laughs> that it becomes more or less funny in ways that that might fit this sort of idea. So of I think it's spot. contingent on the specificity of ET. That it's inf- uh, giant. It's well, there, there the is speci- something like about ET is so specific. It's more specific than a bear. Okay, so then it could be. Um, let's say, what's the well, Smokey the Bear? Well, the joke, the, the thing that makes the bear, the thing that, that the humor hinges on, the thing that makes me laugh about it is someone's made an odd choice, but the the humor comes from that person fully justifying it and thinking it's the most normal thing in the world. Exactly, yes. Uh, so but, but so that like, would I think Stuart, like in, in the routine, Stuart Lee even tags that thing after he goes, I better get a life-size inflatable ET. And his wife then goes, uh, yeah, and you better hurry because there'll be a rush on them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, everyone else. But, so, but it's you just say that, that assumption that it's... Uh, but So then you're saying that ET... The fact that it's ET doesn't matter. It could just be well, something that's Well, odd. something that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, like the fact... You know, obviously the fact, the fact that it's ET matters in that ET is not flowers or a card or anything else that you would normally leave in a condol in an area of condolence. And, yeah, but if it was like a remote. giant inflatable demon, um, it's well, so a giant, there is something yeah. about warm a, and a, a giant yeah. a giant inflatable demon would be different because it feels like it's making a point. It's making a different point. Okay, whereas a ET feels innocuous. like. Yeah, um, but a demon is like well, I believe in Satan. What ET? Which is your point? I believe. Yeah, ET what, would be benign. And what the ET feels like, and and actually, this goes to something um, myself and uh, Nick Doody, he's a UK comic who I write with a lot. Um, something that makes us laugh more than anything else, like, we, and we we try and fit it into scripts whenever we can. Mm-hmm. Is someone well-meaning doing completely the wrong thing? Oh, like that, me too. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one of my. It, it really makes me laugh more than anything else when someone, not when someone does something wrong, but when someone has the best of intentions and somehow and the utmost them. confidence in their abilities. Misses them up. Like we can, talk yeah. about Bush as a president, right? <laughs> but like we, um, like for example, I'm like, going to pause until he's, still, he is, he, he's going to keep holding it. Um, he's mugging until we admit that it's great. It like, was great. Mugging yeah. is great over a podcast. <laughs> People are just like, I can hear his face. <laughs> like I could not stop laughing at the um, the the Jesus painting that the the, the <laughs> yeah, restore, yeah, yeah. restore Jesus painting, the monkey face, and and I found it hilarious. But what what was what really what made me laugh again and again and like meant that I could keep re- returning to that picture and just cracking up uh-huh. wasn't how ludicrous it looked but just thinking about how this woman had absolutely the best of intentions and still when it was pointed out still failed to note failed to realize that she'd done a horrendous thing yeah, yeah. like failed to realize that she turned a renaissance art 
piece into that thing. So is the is the Medine part of it their intention? Is that the thing you think that removes the? Yeah, and 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 they're and they're oblivion. I think they're. Yeah. I, um, I I hate cringe humor. I hate I hate someone going. Oh, I'm going to get caught out. I'm going to look an idiot, and then looking an idiot. But I love someone looking an idiot, but going. This is the right thing to <laughs> yeah, do, yeah, and then yeah. someone else goes, "Look, are you sure this is the right thing to do?" No, I am absolutely one hundred percent certain. Yeah, yeah, this is the correct behavior. I, I just feel like the benign and violation are such elastic terms. That's what I keep getting. Yes, like as a, philosophically, I'm like, well, we have to define what is benign and what is a violation. Because I guess for me, with that picture, what's benign about it is I don't care about that picture. I right. get that it's a classic picture, but a person probably felt that really is serious about Catholicism was completely yeah. offended or owned that piece of art as well, yeah. or owned that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that which again, which goes back to the experiment you ran about the um, the fr- the person you know or the person you not know losing either two grand or right. or fifty. Right. Um, uh, yeah, if it was if it was your painting and that was your inheritance, and then some. 80 year old woman came into your house and drew over it and destroyed it you'd be horrified but, right. but it's but in yeah, 10 it, years maybe you would yeah, think it was a funny story you'd tell your friends or something so, so the, um, the question that I, that I opened with uh, which is why did this audience laugh at this church that was mm-hmm. raffling off a, a Hummer SUV I actually ran that study and what was interesting about it was uh, it, it's non-church goers who thinks that's that's funny? If you if you show this to people who go to church, they're just horrified by this. Mm-hmm. So actually, everybody's kind of disgusted by it, but non-churchgoers can also delight in it. But the churchgoers have a hard time. Have for, a hard time. For, I it, think for non-churchgoers, the, it's more benign. Yeah, it's just not as more threatening. Violation. Yeah. yeah, it's just you know, it's not as bad. So I wanted to um, I wanted to hear what you had to say about observational comedy. Oh, um, okay. Well, this is where I say what I, like what is and isn't benign. What does it mean to be benign, or what does it mean to mm-hmm. be violated? I guess it just with an observational. Uh, well, you're, was it like uh, the recognition of like local references or stuff? Yeah, like that? Yeah, or, or just observa- observational comedy in general. Like, hey, we this is we all bet. Like any comedian who has bits about, hey, this is we all do this thing. Uh, like, Se- I mean, Seinfeld's Seinfeld, humor, most yeah. of Seinfeld stuff. You know, stuff about. Um, about how we how we behave when we go walk onto a plane, or what we used to do when New we went trick or treating. Or, or, yeah. Well, when I think about Seinfeld. I mean, people say that I remember some comedian saying about Seinfeld that it's like I've never seen somebody find so much material in such trivial things. Yeah. Right. If, so I guess to me, in a sense, the violation is how commonplace these things are. Maybe almost like. I, I, this is a, it, this might make no sense. Almost like Seinfeld has seen you do this. Maybe yeah. So he's getting like, into how your does, head. How, how does, does he know he this know, stuff about us? How does he know that I think this? Oh, he has. Oh. He is like it's like he's walked through your life, pointed out things you do, and you go, oh, "I've been being watched this entire time," but in a safe way. But in he's a safe done it- way. Because I relate to him at the same time. So, so I think that um, so w- you're, you guys are right about the definitional issues. Yes. Um, it, so I think the biggest. Cri- I'm the one who brought that up. I'm right about yeah. that. <laughs> Continue. The, the biggest cri- critique of the theory is uh, is is it falsifiable? So so someone might say 
Well, you can't falsify this, the theory, and I would say, well, that's because the theory's right. Mm-hmm. But you could also <laughs> you could also say it's 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 too loose, and so then you can fit almost anything into it. You know, I I, I would say that that um, well, it can generate new predictions. It's still parsimonious. It's sort of intuitively appealing. It fits a lot of the the criteria that we have for um, for good theories. So uh, the way you to think the way I think about um, violation is that they started with physical threats. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in the same way that rats can experience physical threats or non-human primates. But as we started to, as, um, started to evolve and, and get language and then create societies and create cultures, the world of threats, the world of things that can go wrong now has expanded. So now it includes norm violations cultural violations, um, linguistic violations, moral violations. Mm-hmm. And so um, so the idea of a violation can take so many different forms. Right. In the same way with, uh, like, you know, non ones that don't provoke humor, you know, a, a, a rat in a cage is only going to be scared by a potential predator, whereas a Despite human all could... rage. Despite all his rage. <laughs> Continue, I'm sorry. Uh, good reference. But... Uh... <laughs> But a human could be scared by uh, by a book, by a scary, by reading a Stephen King novel, or right, yes, exactly. And by the way, um, if you think about news. horror films, horror films can be horrifying, or they could also be hilarious. Right, right, right. So you think about, and, and what is the difference between the scary films and the and the funny films? Right. In some ways, it's how absurd they are that they it's very clear that it's not real the people right. being sliced and diced and if so it's on. especially if it's too yeah. silly so or campy so the observational humor i think um it actually fits into this idea how the the theory can help provide a framework by which to think about the creation of humor so you could take a situation that's benign and you can highlight what's wrong with it which is what i think the seinfeld does i actually call it the seinfeld strategy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so did you ever notice and if you st- if you listen to what he's about to say after did you ever notice it's something that's kind of peculiar or strange or wrong or weird about what is seemingly normal and was normal up into the moment that he said he pointed out yes the other strategy is you take a situation that's wrong that's a violation, and you find a way to make it okay. Mm. So I call this the Silverman strategy. <laughs> so Sarah Silverman basically commits a hate crime every time that she gets on stage. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, Not as much lately. She's telling more stories. Continue. <laughs> but she, but it's, it's worth it for our listeners. Uh, he's only saying that because uh, she's a Jew who interacts with Gentiles. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. But, uh, but, you know, but you think about it. She's found a way to make these things less threatening she sings them in a song she uses a, qu- a cute voice and she she clearly doesn't mean it and she clearly doesn't mean it in ways that if i had said the same thing to my class in the middle of a lecture i would lose my job right, right? like you know so that so it, you know so you could think about how do you take a situation and make it funny well sometimes you're going to make it more okay sometimes you're going to make it more wrong mm-hmm. um and i think observational comedy finds a way to take situations that people that are, are familiar with and finds a way to make them a little bit wrong because it's social norms sense. it's social norms so it's like half of the audience is going i have noticed yeah. and the other half is going he noticed so i i know that you asked about the comedy club uh-huh. we we ran that study for our humor code project it failed really it did because 
um, people got really drunk and showed up. <laughs> you got a control for that. Yeah, they showed up at the comedy club drunk. But we ran another study about comedians, but f- turned it around. We didn't look at the audience. We looked at the comedians. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we tried to answer the question, do you have to have a screwed up childhood to be funny? Do you have to, is there something, do you have to be something wrong with you to be funny? See, this is some, uh, like something that's always bothered me. This idea, not, not just like firstly screwed up childhood or, or secondly, the idea that comedians are depressed off stage and you know, that mm-hmm. the, the more happy they are on stage, the more morose they are behind the scenes. And I, I think I've always felt that's just someone cherry picking evidence because it's such a beautiful irony and it's such a lovely story. Like no one talks about, no one talks about the tears of the charter surveyor. <laughs> or just you know, no, no one, no one, because because it doesn't have that contrast. No one talks about like oh, by day he works in an office, but but by night he's he's when he goes home he's not that pleased with his lot. Yeah. Whereas yeah. it, whereas there's that really, whereas that there is that contrast between the the happy clown and the sad clown off stage, uh-huh. and then a few key examples make people go, ah, see, they're all like that. Yeah, well, Belushi, right? right. Yeah, yeah, well, some I mean, Seinfeld has some a, yeah. he has a good answer for that. I, uh, Mel Gusso, a conversation he had where he was asked that question, and he said, um, I, I, more or less, he's like, it doesn't, I don't think that it really matters. He's like, you can ask the same about a guy who went down the, became a copy machine repairman. Did he do that because his childhood was messed up? You know, maybe, maybe he just likes copy machines. Maybe he yeah. never got support. Right. Have, has there actually been any, any studies on like whether miserable childhood is more likely to be found in comedians than, say, dentists? Or yes. well, What did your study find? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there's, there is a little bit of research done on this. Um, the, the research that finds that comedians uh, are, quote-unquote, messed up uh, is pretty much crap. So it's all interview-based stuff, and so it just fulfills the expectation of the experimenter. Right, which is so, what I think the general, without that experiment, is what people are doing anyway. Uh, you hear of, like, Tony Hancock, who is a UK comic actor who committed suicide. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. Of, I think there's a strong intuition because I think there's a belief that, that humor is a safety valve, is a way to, right. to cope and a, and a, a way to, to experience some relief. That's sort of Freud's theory. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the rest of the research, which is better, is, is mixed. It finds some evidence, um, but um, it's like, for instance, stand-up comics seem to be less agreeable than um, like a college student population. So it's not super well-controlled. But then they don't die any sooner than any other entertainer, for yes. instance. Uh, which, <laughs> well, than any other although entertainer. Enter- although entertainers <laughs> yeah, do die a little the- sooner than the rest of the population. But, but, but so- you said we're less agreeable. We're, we're, but that, like, would that not be partly be just a product of our job? Like a late, like It's our job to analyze and pick apart, and after a certain amount of time, you become less willing to just go with the flow. Right. So, so the flip side of this is that the most successful comments, comics tend to use a more affiliative type of humor rather than a more aggressive type. So they play nice. They play nicer with others. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that's consistent. Like if you talk to a club owner uh, and you say, well, what, you know, like what's really important to be a successful comedian? A club owner will say, don't be an asshole. Be, you know, so they... So, to the staff, to so, them, yeah. Yeah, so the people who, can, who are sort of with it enough, they tend to actually succeed. So mm-hmm. you find evidence... But then, but then that, I, I think that sort of applies pretty much to any job. You know, you're more likely to get a promotion in, in an office if your boss likes you than if you're a, if you're a cock. Sure. Right. Regardless of your skill set. So, um, yeah. so here's what I think. I, 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 I'm with you guys. Like, I think that it's this sort of... There's vivid examples... 
Um, they're overweighted, and uh, no one really is interested in the story of the comic who had a wonderful set of parents and mm. is you know happily married and all these kinds of things. What I think is the case is that to do good comedy, you have to create violations, and good violations are often things that are wrong with you. And most people don't get up on stage with a mic and tell the world what's wrong with them. Right. So most people have. Like, I think they most, have, most people have things that are wrong with them. And we just, we just zone, zone we in on them. We constantly are talking about you them. You guys are talking them. about them. So you have to act non-normatively in right. order to make people laugh. So we, we <laughs> highlight it in a way that the public doesn't. Yeah, yeah which makes, again, which makes, makes sense. We, like, it might be that you had a bad childhood and that's what you talk about. But we're or constantly you're, or you're thinking about it. But yeah, or it might just be that you're socially awkward, or it might be that you're bad in this situation, or this thing happened, or or, or you just you have a great memory so that you can conjure up yeah. stories that we yeah. would all have, but none of us would think we, to point out. But are, yeah, when when shitty uh, because of our job, when when a shitty thing happens to most people, they just go, "Oh, that was a shit thing." Or they when it happens to us, we go, friend. Yeah. "Yeah." When it happens to us, we go, "We get the notebook out." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, what do you think about this? Uh, Lewis Black has a, a, a comedy class he taught a long time ago. And he basically said that, like, if you're if every aspect of your personality is like slices of a pie, then your comedy character is two or three of those aspects exaggerated, I right? See. So I have this theory that some comedians become their character because we are constantly filtering things through yeah, the yeah. lens of seeing it this way. If right. you're constantly talking about how depressed you are, then you're constantly thinking about how depressed you are. Then it's like a, re- a reverberation in your brain that you become that thing that you're constantly trying That's, to do. Wow. So it could be that even if the people who go to comedy have the same backgrounds as the average person, some people might start to create. Well, via... we, we live in it. That's what we're yeah, saying. We, we live in this persona. We live in that. We're sensitive. We're... And it becomes self-reinforcing, which yeah. I think it is with the general public as well. People get that impression that our oh, comedians are all messed up because... You don't. I'm just not talking about the best things going yeah, on. In you, your don't, life you don't. You don't go on stage and like, hey guys, uh, so uh, things are going pretty nicely with uh, me and my girlfriend right now. There's the yeah. There's but no. Good night. There's no laughter in heaven, <laughs> right? Right, right? You know. So I mean, so if there's no laughter in heaven, you know, you're not going to get up and say how great the yeah. world is. Yeah. I went out to a restaurant last night. We had a delicious meal, and the service was impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> so that's his closer. <laughs> That's actually yeah. a fantastic bit, dude. You should do that. This is my impersonation of the comedian where everything's going right with him. <laughs> we, uh, we ran a study where we asked people to tell an interesting story or to tell a funny story. And then we took all those stories and we showed them to other people. And we said, which of these, which of these, these folks is messed up? And it was the people who told the funny stories. So, right. you know, so, so we kept everything constant. We just randomly assigned people to the type of story. And when you read the funny stories, by the way, when the, the, the funny stories weren't very funny, then the people seemed especially messed up. Right. And they were attempting humor and it wasn't yeah, They good. were attempting wow. humor and they, felt like they talked about some bad situation and you didn't make someone laugh. And they're like, oh, that's So they got the funny. violation bit, but without the without, benign. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then people trying to do interesting stories were just sort of doing benign, maybe? Is that the... Like, yeah. what, what were the quote-unquote interesting stories like? None, um, of, none of those were unintentionally funny? You know, so here's one of the problems with the, the, the study in general is that the average person is just not very funny. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually <laughs> so rerunning true. this study with, um, um, with comedians, with people who are doing, uh, doing comedy uh, more or less for a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pete, what do you think about this? Oh, you're about to make a point? No, no, please. Uh, <laughs> I was 
just thinking because you had said this. You were you were talking about the flip side of the benign and the violation. So I was just thinking like a, a comedian cadence, and basically it's like, what do you think that every joke kind of fits into this? It's like a benign, 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 benign violation, <laughs> <laughs> or violation, 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 benign. Oh, that's. <laughs> That's very huh? true. Come on. That's, Good night. That's, that's pretty. Mic drop. That's, that's pretty very point. nice. Yeah. That's very, very nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I was actually reading. We should point out to the listeners that you can um, you can go to humorcode.com to find out more about your work and your upcoming book, uh, but also you have a lot of blog posts on Huffington Post about some of these things. Like I just, I was reading up today and I read the one um, about the fact that most things aren't funny <laughs> right, <laughs> like about yeah. how humor isn't the most common thing. That was really interesting. And then also the one I was reading about that was most interesting to me was, uh, we talked about earlier in the podcast, how even when you see something coming, it can still be funny. And people were listening to, was it Phyllis Diller and, and Bill Cosby albums? So this was someone else's study, but back in the seventies, but that they were, they would stop after the setup, ask them to predict the punchline. And then people who, uh, the, the the jokes that people were most able to predict, is this right, were also the ones people rated as funniest? That's right, yeah. So it, it's it's a really surprising study, I think, because it goes against the intuition that, that punchlines should be really unexpected. Should be like a mystery. Yeah, yeah they should. So so I think there's two things going on. So one is that um, that this study found that, that the people who predicted the punchline, that those punchlines tended to be the ones that Phyllis Diller and... Bill Cosby were likely to say, and they uh-huh. also were the ones that were funniest rated by a second group of people. And, um, and I think that's because uh, there are plenty of more unexpected punchlines that aren't funny mm-hmm. because they're not violation, 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 benign, benign. or benign, benign, benign. Well, the, well those violation. two comics, exactly. particularly, well, particularly Bill Cosby is very much a storyteller. Very uh, family he, oriented. He's as well. not a one liner guy. So he's much more in that Seinfeld mold of just of picking out the incongruities. Starting from the benign, life. introducing a little bit of yeah. So yeah. he's so he he's setting up the violations at the beginning and and bringing it within the benign world. Oh, you were saying uh, the app? Okay, yeah, so, I th- I th- or at least yeah, he's he's bringing you into a world of violations. See, I got a I got a problem with that experiment though. I'm I'm, I'm I'd be I'd want to see I I want to know what the control was. Right? Is that the right? Yeah, time? sure. <laughs> yeah, just because it's like. That's a that's a I'm thinking of test audiences or te- people who listen to music are more likely to like things that sound similar to things they've heard before. Mm-hmm. Right? They dislike things that sound new. But of course, later things that sounded a little different because they're different become more common. Mm-hmm. But it's like we always recognize we always like what we recognize, but that uh so I guess with that it's like it, it eliminates the, I don't know, I think it eliminates the, the, the factor of liveness about it, the spontaneity of the moment. But I guess what I like about it is that so many comics that I've heard get defensive about your theory, which is crazy to me, because I, I love, I don't think that it ruins comedy to analyze it, and I think it could even get, get a framework to make things are funny. You, are you kidding me? Benign, benign, benign violation? That's my new freaking That's thing. great, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the comics that don't like it, I want to see you don't do like, like 10 minutes about think, a tiger lily. <laughs> I'll do it. They think that once you know all these things, you'll stop loving comedy. But I love when I see something coming and I and I know where it's going and I like where it's going. I get super excited. Or even like there are so many jokes or YouTube videos I can watch a hundred times and laugh every time because or they're still looking at this painting. That every time you see it, there's nothing surprising. Yeah. 
No. About that situation. I mean, it definitely you know made coming. me laugh the most the first day. Sure. Yeah. But, but there's some things. But it, was, just... but it wasn't, yeah, the initial surprise made me laugh. And then I just kept going back to it and giggled. And then, yeah. and then uh, there's, here's another thing. I then show it to friends and then laugh vicariously. Like when, when they saw it for the first time, I just make a big play. Yeah. Go, okay, so this is what it used to look like. <laughs> I'm laughing just picturing that reveal. To I am. I'm yeah, exactly. laughing. I'm laughing go, too. It, I, and I, I would. I'd sort of hold it back. I'd have it open on two different tabs in my browser. Go, this is the original. <laughs> and this is what she's done. And then just sit back and enjoy the moment. But it's I still great. think the originality is based upon the elasticity of what is benign and what is a violation. And as you said, it was like the, the personal wrongs. You had brought that up before that, like, if we, because our lives aren't all the same, obviously. So, what is a violation to me might not be a violation to you. And it's bridging that gap yeah. Yeah. that creates that stand up, mofo. Okay. So, so, as for the Humor Code project, I actually uh, tried stand up. Uh-huh. Ooh, shazzle dazzle. <laughs> I did. What was your opener? <laughs> so, um, so, I did it twice. So, it, in chapter one, I go to an open mic and I, I bomb. Absolutely bomb, and uh, and actually this. I, so I and was. Did you retrospectively claim that that was the intention? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't actually. I was That's actually. Good I went in. I went in actually fairly confident that you that were going to go well. I was going to do well. Uh, so what happened was so Joel Warner's a, a a writer journalist, and he was he was writing a story about me for um, for a Denver um, newspaper, and he invited me to go to open mic night. And critique the comedians using the theory. I offered to get on stage. I got up on stage at uh, at the Squire Lounge, which is the the toughest open mic in Denver. So the the jokes were about slavery, accidentally smoking crack, menstrual cycles, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and I did a I did a the full a, Cosby. I did a, <laughs> I did a bit about how to make a good nickname. And I knew going in that my that these jokes might be too benign and. And basically, I put the audience to sleep. They were kind to me. They just turned their attention to each other and started talking. Mm-hmm. So, but this made me realize that, that I can't just understand humor using a laboratory. I think you need a lab. It's necessary, but it's mm-hmm. not sufficient. And so this, so essentially for, the, for the, the next two years almost, we've been traveling the world to try to answer this question. Um, and and at the, our, our last trip was to the Just for Last Festival. And uh, where I went on stage at a professional comedy club. Which one? Uh, at the Comedy Nest. Oh, I hate that place. <laughs> Slash, I'm headlining it in May. I'll see, you. I'll see you in Montreal. That's absolutely true. I am headlining the Comedy Nest in May. So, so one of the lessons that I learned, actually I learned it here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were looking at the question of who is funny, was um, you have to make people laugh right away. And you should say the thing that they're all thinking about you. So make fun of yourself. I don't know about right should, beginning. but can. Well, like, can. That's okay. definitely a... But that's like the first it's, joke that like every comedian has to write. Yeah, it's, like, I love, like if this the person, obvious. this person had a baby, or I'm half this, half that, which means that that's I'm... Right. Yeah, when, when, I, when I first started, I, I looked... I looked like a teenager. You know, I was 21 and probably looked about 15. Was that a year so ago? My, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, boom! You got to get back at the comedy desk, I'm telling you. <laughs> Shut up, professor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, so my, my first, my first, my opening line for years was were variants of something acknowledging that fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, to put them, which I guess with their, is them putting the audience at rest. Uh, the violation is 
there's a kid on stage and right. the benign nature of it is oh it's not actually a kid and he's aware of what he looks like so That's we're okay right. with this now yeah so so i um i'm not i i guess i can say this i won't ruin the book but um <laughs> i said that you know i've been studying comedy and the and i one of the first things i learned is you need to get a laugh right away mm-hmm. which is why i wore this sweater vest boom so i was wearing a sweater vest on stage which comics don't normally do but professors do <laughs> in the 80s occasion. in the 80s exactly right and it you know it worked it was it was a good you know it was a good start see because nice. the other thing is that the other element to this is the jadedness of the audience that we've we've been inundated with so much comedy that people because I, I feel like people i i feel in my personal experience People cannot articulate what it is they find funny. They can articulate what they what it is they don't find funny. But I once read the study that like a person's type romantically, mm-hmm. what they say is their type has very little to do with what they actually react to chemically. It has more to do with how they perceive themselves. Right, right. right? I can see so that. I think that's the same thing with, with what people say, oh, I think this and this is funny and this and this isn't. It's like, well, but if you were in the audience and someone talked about the things that you're saying aren't funny, you'd probably laugh because you're in an audience. Right. And that's the problem with but one of the blog posts of, that you guys did in HuffPo was about how thought experiments fail with these kind of things because intuition so often isn't true when you measure it against real experiments to, to see what makes things funny. People's intuition of what they find funny isn't actually the case. And, but also, things they find funny vary hugely depending on the situation. Like what you said about getting that laugh in early, that's one of the key things comics learn because that gets the audience to trust you and then they believe that the other things you say are funny. Like, I mean, ev- every single comic in the world has had wildly different reactions to identical material mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. probably to identical delivery as near as damn it of the same material right uh, it, and that's and that's partly a factor like you you can feel when the audience is going away from you and you're losing them with the same jokes that you've always done and that's they're losing that trust in you but also i feel like that we we i believe there is a space and I know that Todd Glass has gotten on a, on a high horse about like how a comedy room should be set up. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of when you enter into a, a comedy room, you're being given so many psychological cues that you don't even think of. They're subconscious. And so it's like a place like the Comedy Nest, there's a couple different things that I have a problem with. The fact that the, <laughs> the ceiling is so high, right? Also, there's no carpeting. It's a hard floor, and like the, the 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 way it is, it's like it's such a cavernous sound there. It's not soft. See, I think um, the the high ceiling, which is bad for comedy, has I think it's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the audience sound doesn't it isn't kept in as much, so the audience doesn't hear each other laughing. That's why comedy outside always sucks. Absolutely, because yeah. because they can't hear each other laugh, and so you don't have that communal thing we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I. I think is my, going back to my pet theory. Um, low ceiling rooms feel conspiratorial. Feel like you're entering into something. Some mm-hmm. of the be- some of the best clubs in the world are the ones where you go downstairs into a cellar. It's like Zymar Republic. Yeah, you, you sort of the, you, something's about to happen. So you know the the comedy works in Denver, the comedy store in London, the comedy cellar, cellar in yeah. uh, in New York. Like all of these, these are all rooms where you go. You're going underground, or you're going you're going into a down into a den and it, some kind and, of freemason lodge or something yeah or the, 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 it shouldn't feel it should feel like you're going into a closed room for something special mm-hmm. uh and once you're inside that room it's you and the performer and it's, well it's ideally it's the perfor- you're in darkness also so you can stop being self-conscious the performer's well lit so you yes. can let your id out and just laugh at whatever instinctively tickles you not hold back wait right? what, what was that why'd you look at me 
You just, <laughs> were you just scratching your I, neck? I was waiting for you to say, you're right. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I, that was... Uh, hey, Matt, you're right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, also, and, and also, there's another ingredient that, that you guys haven't mentioned yet, and that's alcohol. Right. Oh. Social lubricant. And how that can help or it can hurt. Well, it helps up. Alcohol helps up to a point and then it hinders. Yeah. There's like, there's an optimum range in which people are sufficiently lacking in self-consciousness I mean, that, but, but still have focus. But the faculties are still there to process a What's small happening. joke. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then also like a famous comedian who just does, just does away with going to clubs and does a theater. They don't serve drinks. That, but the people also have this trust going in. I know I'm seeing this person right, that I right. love. Who's earned me already? Right, and I'm going to laugh no matter what. And even say. when it's not someone famous, like theater gigs are often theater gigs are often easier because there's that feeling of occasion. There's a feeling like you're seeing something special. Right. Oh, so even if me. even if you're, like to be in the audience or to be on the stage, be on the stage. Do you not like them? I I, I haven't had the, always the best time in theaters. I I don't I I like theaters sometimes because I find them easy to play because the audience is sort of soft and giving. Mm-hmm. But it but they're also not as sharp. There isn't that sort of whip crack of a laugh that you get, and so the rhythm's different. Yeah, you have to slow your pacing down. I see. So so if you think about alcohol and why people drink it, one of the reasons that they drink it is because it it helps reduce anxiety. It helps basically take the edge off. So mm-hmm. it. It reduces the threat of the world, right? So people like, you know, when do people say, I need a drink? Well, they need a drink not when everything's great. It's when things are bad because the world seems less bad when mm-hmm. you do that. Um, so I think that, that that works, again, up until some point. Until then, people so we should have so a two drunk. joint minimum. It's you know, like, about <laughs> about two drink minimum. Oh, <laughs> Watch out. Oh, no, it's California. It's no. legal. Watch out. It's the same thing with bowling and darts. Like there's a two or three beer improvement in your game, and then after that, your scores are just. Oh, I don't fuck around with either of those sports. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you at least admitted their sports. Yeah. So I think that there there's there is a critique. I'll 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 critique the benign violation theory, Um, and I think that Matt's been dancing around it, uh, and that is this idea of cleverness. Mm -hmm. So um, what often. Uh, people really value is this insight, this moment of insight that happens uh, when someone delivers a punchline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually think that that moment of pleasure can be humor, the arousal, the delight that comes from a benign violation. But there can be a, an additive, another form of pleasure that we have, and that's that we appreciate that aha moment. And uh, but that's not limited to comedy. So that aha moment, that lightning bolt of insight that we find pleasurable, shows up in other places. It happens in invention. Um, so the the you know the apple falls and Newton goes aha you know, or it happens when you solve a difficult problem, a math problem, fourth act of Law and Order, where you're like, I knew it was that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, yeah. So so people aren't delighting and laughing and experiencing a humorous response when you figure out the who done it. But it's more the, oh, yeah, you know, that, that aha type thing. And I think good comedy does both. So, so the New Yorker cartoons often just does the cleverness. Sometimes it does both. But oftentimes there's just the enjoyment of this, this thing that's really insightful. So just an appreciation of intelligence more than an actual humorous yeah, response. I th- so, the, so the research on this... Um, talks about you you put together things that you hadn't seen together before right and it it solves a problem 
Uh-huh. That's really part of the idea is that you're solving a problem. Solving a problem is is inherently pleasurable. And it might be laughable depending on the nature of the, vol- of the problem, but it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. And so the benign violation theory does not explain cleverness per se because artistic things can be clever, clever, cleverable. There's not a word. <laughs> I'm struggling now. Um, but inventions can be all these kinds of things, but yeah. they're not necessarily laughter inducing mm-hmm. and then the opposite of aha is i don't get it exactly it's i haven't like, solved I the problem i didn't put those things together you haven't solved the problem for me or you haven't led me to the place where i solve the problem or the person is just incapable of solving problems <laughs> i mean because we've all married to drink one. or they're dumb or yeah yeah that's or right. both <laughs> yeah that's right matt yeah i don't get it <laughs> <laughs> just in general this whole podcast i don't yeah i don't even know where we are i don't follow you're gonna cut half of this aren't you <laughs> i just yeah. i just followed annie into his bedroom and now we've got in some weird conversation are you yeah. he led you in here with a carrot and you were like oh it's not the first time guys oh well thank you thank you all for joining me in my bedroom this evening hey good transition out Andy. Yeah. Very nice. I, I do want to remind the audience the, that, yeah, the humor code is you are in the final stages of editing the book. Is there an actual release date yet? Or It's looking uh, it's looking like early 2014. So we're, oh, okay. So we just delivered it to Simon & Schuster. They like it, which is great. Uh, Joel has done a really wonderful job. Who likes job it more, though, it. Simon or, uh, <laughs> or Schuster? <laughs> Schuster's I a think stickler. Schuster's yeah. a stick. Such an, He's such a an dick. asshole. I couldn't just let that go. <laughs> Continue. Uh, yeah, so, um, but we're, we're going to start doing some some promoting of it and we're going to you know hit some festivals you we're going to keep Conan. we're going to keep blogging for Huffington Post and Psychology Today nice. and, and in the meantime you can follow you on Twitter as well yeah. we're uh, so I, I'm Peter McGraw mm-hmm. on Twitter and then we have Humor Code on Twitter so, and, and then there's uh, Joel M. Warner on Twitter so there's lots to follow and, and yeah. Baron you, you uh, you've got a weird Twitter handle isn't it? you barve on <laughs> Do you have a hard? You know what this is? This is a this is a problem that I thought people could solve that no one ever gets. It's Barvon Black. Right. It's B A R V O N B L A Q. There's too much going on, right? First of all, it ends with black with a Q. Are you aware there is a Barrett? There's there's a fake Baron Vaughn on Twitter at the moment as well. What? Like that's uh, supposed to be me? No, there's a. There, I think so. I believe so. Yeah, just because we. Uh, we tried to send a tweet out, uh, Emery, 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 who does the Art and Atheist podcast that you were on last week, tried to send out a tweet about you being on it, and he first did that, and I was like, that's weird, uh, Baron's only got, like, 60 followers, and I'm like, that's definitely not, he's got more than that. But it was a picture of Baron, like someone I believe tried to so, make... yeah, you want to wow. check that. I meant to You've made you. it, you've made it, You have friend. a fake account. Just when you think no one cares, <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone makes a fake Twitter account. In your name. And now I gotta fucking follow this guy. Oh yeah, so it's, it's Barvon Black, because my name is Baron, but then I put a, B, a V after the R and it becomes Barvon. And Vaughn is V-O-N, even though that's not how my last name is spelled, but that's how people always misspell it. See, too many things going on. <laughs> that's too... And Vaughn also is so German. You were trying to make it, so you were trying to make it like Baron Von Black, kind of. was In a sense, but also acknowledging that that's not how my last name is spelled. Right. And that's also the joke that everyone makes when they hear my name is Baron Vaughn. They're like, Baron Vaughn what? Wink, wink, wink. So let's, let's turn it back to Pete for a second. Is too much benign or too much violation with this Twitter handle? I can't hey, tell which it is. They call me benign You're, you're going to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, you, you are vastly, edit. yeah. You are overestimating our editing ability. This is uh, this is uh, this is a long one, but I think it was really interesting. And but, I, 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 audiences that are still listening, God bless you. Thank uh, you for sticking it out, Baron. You're also uh, you're going to be 
you're you're gonna be at Vancouver Comedy Festival because I'm gonna be there with you. We'll be <laughs> oh, we're we'll, plugging stuff. We'll be yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll be skipping through the streets of Vancouver. Uh, myself and Baron, seventh through the ninth, seventh through the ninth of uh, February. Uh, and any other gigs coming up that people should know about? Or you're in gigs in LA, right? Yeah, yeah. Come and see. <laughs> Oh, uh, Boston, I'm doing a half a Comedy Central half hour. Oh, that's fantastic. Right? This February 27th, something like that. Awesome. I think. Congrats. That's great. I, I, like, I like that you guys said awesome with, with just a tinge of self-hatred in it. <laughs> I don't like, have awesome. these things happening oh, right now. Hmm. Dick. I you will be dick. at... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. This bedroom. Next time I'll be on stage somewhere. <laughs> I'll be in this bedroom a fair amount. Yeah. Yeah, so just find Andy, ask for the microphones. He'll pretend to yawn. He'll do things. It'll be great. <laughs> Don't pay him in jerky, right? <laughs> Call back. Still going to that well. Yep, still got the Portland jokes two years later. Uh, on that note, yeah, thank you for listening. And don't forget to throw us a review up on iTunes. Um, uh, subscribe. We always forget to say that. If you enjoyed us, subscribe. It's not always just talk about humor. Normally, we cover science topics. Uh, this was this science. Was this, this was, was science the whole yeah, time. Normally we, yeah, normally, we t- cover many topics rather than just in-depth on one. Right. But... Uh, follow us find out what happens with the results of our experiment That's and right. by our experiments I mean Peter's because he's going to do the work and then we'll yeah. just talk about it <laughs> uh, and, and if you can if you can get a life-size ET also to do some of these experiments that would be great too so, so, so yeah any comments any questions uh, probablyscience at gmail.com tweet us at probablyscience and comment on iTunes and subscribe and thank you for listening we'll see you next week we'll see you next week